Good evening. Um, thank you all very much for coming. Um, my first duty is to make sure that we can be heard in the back row. How's it? Can you hear me in the back row upstairs? Yes. Oh, very good. Um, well, that's uh, one anxiety resolved. The um, lecture tonight... Are you getting feedback here? I'll try to stand a bit further away. When I first started lecturing here uh, in the 80s, we used to do it without microphones, so you just had to learn voice projection. But this is a series in the um, LSE University of Melbourne series. University of Melbourne is a partner of the LSE in Australia. We value the partnership uh, greatly. The universities have a great deal in common, including a devotion to uh, excellence, um, internationalism and, uh, and public policy. Uh, how many people in the audience from Australia? Well, very good. You're welcome. Um, it's uh, a special pleasure for me to introduce Ross Garno. Ross has been a friend for um, some time now, and um, he is a man of quite extraordinary distinction. Um, First and foremost in our subject of economics itself, where he's played a leading role in Australian academic life, including um, being head of the economics department and uh, head of the division of the Research School of Pacific and Asian Studies at the Australian National University. Um, he is absolutely prolific. I think the book count is approaching 50 and uh, goes, on, uh, goes on rising. I won't go through um, all the academic achievements, but I wanted to emphasise the achievements outside academic life. He's the only first-class economist I know who's also been an ambassador to China, and he was an ambassador, Australian ambassador to China in uh, extraordinarily important years, 1985 to 1988. And... Uh, along with there's so many other things, but let me just mention one more, because on this one we had a close affinity. Um, Ross uh, published the uh, Gano Review on climate change, and um, just after there was a Stern Review on climate change. And I have to say, I learned a great deal from reading the Gano Review on climate change, uh, including after having written the Stern Review. On climate change. It's a very important document, and uh, I would urge those of you who are interested in the subject to go and um, have a look at it. Now, his topic today is capitalism, social and socialism, and democracy in the 21st century. Has the feedback stopped? It's still there. On the case? Yeah. Okay. Thank you, um, Ross. I, I'm, I'm not going to try to prolong the introduction until the moment when the feedback stops, so that I do hope that by the time I get off this, uh, it, it, it has stopped. Um, I, I just wanted to... I haven't said this to you, Ross, but I just wanted to refer to capitalism, social and democracy, because I decided, after a degree in mathematics, I decided to uh, do economics, because I thought it'd be a good idea to try and change the world, because it was uh, an unpleasant place. Of course, the world has a tendency to push back and be ungrateful. Um, but I went to, um, I was 21, I went to an outstanding mathematical economist in Cambridge, uh, Jim Merlees, who subsequently won 
the Nobel Prize and said, I, w- I want to do economics. And he said, are you sure? And I said, I'm sure. And he said, well, I'll take you on as a student. Um, the following year, he won the Nobel Prize. The cause and effect wasn't that tight. Um, <laughs> so I should say the following year, he wrote the paper for which he later got the Nobel Prize. Um, I said, what shall I read during the summer before I start doing the formal course? And he gave me two things to read. He said, you'd better read Keynes's General Theory and you'd better read Schumpeter's Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy. And those two books have stayed with me throughout my academic career. So I was particularly touched by your choice of, uh, of title, um, Ross. It's, uh, it's very important and I'm looking forward very much to hearing what you have to say. We will listen to Ross and then we'll have a chance to um, have a to and fro. Um, well, there'll be a question and answer session. So, Ross, you're enormously welcome to the London School of Economics. Thanks, Nick. It's a great pleasure to be here and uh, especially a great pleasure to be here with you. Uh, we've uh, shared a number of, of occasions, including a Chinese launch of uh, my climate change review, which was published in Chinese way back in 2008 at the Academy of Science in China. Well, three weeks ago I was back in China and I caught the train from... Beijing to Shanghai, and I, in preparation for this lecture, I took along with me uh, Karl Popper's uh, uh, The Open Society and Its Enemies. Uh, but uh, regrettably, uh, uh, Shandong and Jiangsu sped past too fast to complete uh, Popper's book uh, between uh, Beijing and Shanghai, so there's some left over. Well, a week ago, I was in Indonesia, and uh, I got onto a new tollway in Surabaya to drive to uh, Bajonagoro in East Java. Uh, Shanghai, Beijing is about 1,300 kilometres, uh, it's 115 kilometres to Bajonagoro, and uh, I could have comfortably read Popper's book on the road to Bajonagoro on the tollway. Uh, for 10 kilometres of the journey, we crawled along, and at the end of the 10 kilometres, we saw that the bottleneck was uh, one small shop, uh, the owner of which uh, had uh, refused the government's compensation offer, and so he was holding up the tollway. Well, in between China and Indonesia, back in Australia, uh, we were having an argument about whether to build 13 kilometres of slow rail from the Sydney suburb of Epping to the Sydney suburb of Parramatta. And we'd been having that argument for all of the time that China had taken to build 13,000 kilometres of fast rail between its great cities. Well, the... The preoccupations of political discourse in the three countries were were more different than uh, uh, the preoccupations of of about uh, transport. Uh, Indonesian discussion of politics last week was consumed by popular reaction to a decision of the parliament 
that was dominated by supporters of the losing candidate in the, in the presidential elections, uh, General Prabowo, uh, connected intimately to the old uh, Suharto military regime. The new law ended direct elections, provincial and local governments. Uh, it would block the repetition of the success of Chukowi, uh, the charismatic president-elect, who had risen from being mayor of Jakarta uh, through his popular appeal over the heads of the large established parties and the business elites which funded them. And I've got a cartoon from, uh, uh, from uh, Compass, the popular... Uh, Indonesian daily. Now, I haven't been instructed on how to change this over. I'll try something. Uh, that's, the car I, that's the cartoon in the paper. Uh, Belkada, 2005-2014, elections on the left-hand side. Uh, Belkada tidak langsung, uh, elections, not direct. Uh, there's the right-hand side, and uh, that cartoon made of powerfully one of the points I want to make this evening. Uh, I'll leave that there for a moment and you can absorb it. Uh, I, the Chinese in Beijing, when I was there, talked about politics, uh, who were interested in politics, mainly talked about the arrest of yet one more leader of a state-owned corporation for corruption. Uh, the General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, has been striking out boldly to strengthen the capacity of his party and government to deal with the challenges of the 21st century. And the first of those challenges is to clean up the relationship between the market and the state, uh, business and the policy-making processes of the state. And Australia, in between, was absorbed by the consequences of a new balance of power in our Senate. Uh, decisions on the future of carbon pricing, a mining tax, and many fiscal measures were hanging on the votes of a new political party that had funded a massive election campaign from wealth created recently by its founders' privileged participation in Australia's China resources boom. Melbourne provides two distinctive standpoints from which to look at the topic this evening, the evolution of economic and political systems. Uh, one point of distinction is that Antipodean economic and political systems have evolved differently from those of the other old developed democracies. Uh, many of the modern institutions of democracy had their their origins or their first trials uh, in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, Keynes' recent important book on history of democracy uh, documents that. Uh, and demographic uh, evolution of the colonies of Australia and New Zealand in the 19th and early 20th century was less constrained by inherited wealth uh, and privilege than uh, the political systems of Europe, including the United Kingdom. Uh, the United States shared that characteristic with Australia, uh, but Australia was different from the United States, not having the, uh, the legacy, the history of slavery and the immense social uh, shadow from that. Uh, uh, the Australian-New Zealand uh, uh, Labor 
communities where well, labor was more scarce, it was more self-confident, and the democratic polity was more assertive than in the United States from the beginning. And uh, as a result, uh, Australians used their early democracy to de modify the distribution of income that emerged from the untrammeled workings of the market economy. Uh, William Pember Reeves' description of these innovations in state enterprises in Australia and New Zealand, book at the beginning of the 20th century, set up his long foundational leadership of the London School of Economics. Uh, the Frenchman made Tan's description more than a century ago of the social and economic order of Australia and New Zealand as socialism without doctrine evokes a reality that has helped to shape today's political culture and institutions. Australian and New Zealand democracy has avoided the articulation of policy within an elaborate and consistent set of ideas. Popper's open society and its enemies with its praise for pragmatic democracy, was influenced by being written during his Antipodean exile immediately before joining the staff of this school. He went straight from New Zealand uh, to here uh, in '45. Uh, those roots contributed to the distinctive character of market-oriented policy uh, in a remarkable period of reform from 1983 to 2000. Uh, after a deep recession in 1991, which was partly a consequence of taking time to learn how to manage the deregulated financial system, Australia has enjoyed the longest economic expansion unbroken by recession in its history, or for that matter, uh, the history of any developed country, except by a small margin that might soon disappear, uh, the Netherlands during the North Sea gas boom. Life has been harder since the China resources boom came off its peak in 2011. It will get harder still over the next few years as Australia grapples with economic challenges within a less suitable political culture. That is the story of my recent book, uh, Dog Days, Australia After the Boom. The Australian reforms coincided in the beginning with the deregulatory initiatives of Thatcher and Reagan and from a distance were conflated with them. But Australia's market-oriented reform was within a social democratic framework. There was a downside to the absence of doctrine in the late 20th century reforms. Uh, critics who disliked the larger role for markets were able to set up a caricature of policy as if it had no social democratic content and to condemn the application of policy-making of economic analysis as economic rationalism. It became a pejorative term. I was a bit sensitive about it myself as I was the Prime Minister's economic advisor at the time, uh, but I actually came to think there was nothing particularly wrong with being called an economic rationalist. Uh, that opened the way for people who favoured the market orientation but not the social democracy to claim the success of the reforms over the next quarter century as their own. Uh, and to present economically irrational deregulation as a continuation of the policy approach of the reform era. This is a hu hugely important development in the 21st century world of uninhibited engagement of business interests in the policy process, as independent application of economic analysis to policy choice is crucial to the defence of the public interest against sectional claims. 
The absence of doctrine in early state policy in Australia contributed to the avoidance of extremes, or almost avoided them. There was doctrine in the early 20th century Antipodean insistence that the good life being built within a young democracy was for a small part and not the whole of humanity. And that's the story of the white Australia policy. The exclusion of most of humanity from early concerns for equity was part of a more general exclusion from conceptions of economic development. This is a fundamental flaw in almost everything written about economic growth and the distribution of income until the last half century, with the work of Australian economist Colin Clark being the most important exception. The discussion of the distribution of income in the developed countries today is still sometimes conducted as if it could be separated from the plight of the rest of humanity. Prosperity has helped to delay Australians' curiosity about weaknesses in modern democratic capitalism. We have been late to ask the questions that have attracted interest elsewhere in the developed world about where our political and economic systems are taking us, questions that were last so prominent in the 1930s and 1940s. Seventy and eighty years ago, we were challenged by economic decline and hopelessly high unemployment, and then by the capitulation of continental Europe to Nazism. While Keynes in the 1930s and Hayek, Schumpeter and Popper in the 1940s were all strongly committed to personal freedom and the advantages of the market economy, they had different hopes and fears about what was possible for the future and about the greatest dangers to our civilization. Keynes' essay, The Economics of Our Grandchildren, as well as the concluding chapter of the general theory, saw the inexorable accumulation of capital and increases in productivity as leading over a hundred years to material abundance. The continued accumulation of capital would eventually reduce the rate of return on low-risk investment to negligible levels, bringing about the euthanasia of the rentier. Some income differentials would rem remain to ensure that the wheels of the economy kept turning, but taxation could safely be more progressive as the jobs would be done well enough for less. The remaining inequality was unimportant, as everyone with the capacity to enjoy the good life would be living well. Far from leading to the plutocracy anticipated in Piketty's uh, recent work, the abundance of capital would make its owners less influential and important just as abundance would make economists as boring as dentists. Skidelsky and Skidelsky, in a recent book, have examined some of Keynes' prognosis against what is now historical experience. The expectation of productivity and incomes growth has been met more or less precisely, but people have chosen to take much less of the new abundance as leisure than Keynes had anticipated. Hayek at this school once remarked that Keynes lacked curiosity about anything that had not been written in English. The most important gap in Keynes' curiosity, however, was the consequence of extending modern economic development to the whole of humanity. Hayek's warning against central planning was justified by the subsequent evolution of Soviet central planning and its echo in China from 1949. Both had been confined to the dustbin of history by the early 1990s. While Hayek's road to serfdom became a revered text for those who sought to push back the boundaries of the democratic capitalist state 
in the late um, 20th century, its actual content is helpful today to people seeking to preserve the role of the mixed economy that had been so successful in the post-war decades. Of relevance to contemporary debates, Hayek acknowledges roles amongst much else for a social security net, including provision of health care, and for systematic intervention to avoid external environmental costs from private economic decisions. As Keynes noted at the time, once the case for intervention has been made in principle, the question is where to draw the line. The answer is not found in doctrine, but in analysis case by case. Schumpeter in Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy, and now, Nick, I've mentioned both of the books that uh, Merleys gave you to read, uh, was at once convinced of the great merits of traditional unrestrained capitalism and doubtful about its survival in a democratic polity. Schumpeter used Napoleonic examples to show that good non-democratic leadership could produce government for the people. He could as easily have taken the example of Bismarck. But in the end, effective leadership for important change required an appeal to the people that pushed a society towards government acceptable to the people and by implication, in the end, by the people. Of special interest to the 21st century discussion, Schumpeter thought that the means of the, at the disposal of private interests in democracy are, off, quote, are often used to thwart the will of the pe people and to interfere with the working of the mechanism of competitive leadership. Popper was less impressed than Schumpeter both by the pure form of traditional capitalism and by Marxist logic and more comfortable with the messy reality of, of democracy and its inevitable tendency towards social democracy. The open society might get many things wrong, but it had a capacity for self-correction and for improvement over time that was more valuable than the occasionally more precise correctness of its enemies. Popper was interesting also for his vilification of Plato as the original source of ideological opposition to the open society. This was ethnocentric in Popper's time. Confucian political philosophy, incidentally developed at the same time, almost, almost the same years that Plato or Socrates was on earth, had said as much about the advantages of leadership by an elite that was aware of the responsibilities, of its responsibilities to the wider community. The case for Plato's general importance in global political thought is stronger now than in the 1940s. The current leaders of the Chinese Communist Party were taught at university in the party school that their version of socialist thought had beginnings in Plato. General Secretary Xi Jinping's Herculean, or Sisyphean, efforts to purge corruption from the Chinese Communist Party can be seen as seeking longevity of party rule through government by platonic guardians. The cautionary words from the troubled years assisted the developed world to avoid some traps. This and the favourable experience of the post-war decades focused the spotlight on more mundane questions. The best of modern economics has much that is valuable to say about the boundaries between activities that are most usefully undertaken through unrestrained market exchange those that require regulated markets for good outcomes in the public interest, and those that are best provided directly by the state. 
It was influential mainstream economics on these matters in the North Atlantic in the golden post-war years and in Australia in the reform period, 83 to the end of the century. The stagnation and in the United States the decline of labour incomes and more generally the large increase in the dispersions of the distribution of incomes and wealth in the late 20th and early 21st century have renewed discussion of where our political and economic systems are taking us. And mainstream economists in the United States, Sachs, Stiglitz, uh, Krugman, uh, have become critics of the way the democratic system is working uh, and are focusing especially on the role of corporate money in the policy-making process. Piketty's recent book has become the focus of much of the recent discussion. Uh, Piketty highlights a challenge to the future of democracy from widening dispersion of the distribution of incomes and wealth. He pre presents in an engaging way immense information on the distribution of income and wealth at various times since the 18th century, focusing almost uh, exclusively on France, or, or most intensively, on France, the United Kingdom and the United States. He touches upon other countries, uh, mostly developed and mainly in Europe. He describes a simple economic model within which we can understand part of the change in the distribution of incomes over time, that part which derives from changes in the distribution between labour and capital. He discusses eclectically a range of other influences on the distribution of income and wealth. He applies insight from the model and the eclectic discussion to suggest that in the absence of political upheaval or new policies, inequality will widen to and perhaps beyond levels known in Europe before World War I. He comments that this is likely to be inconsistent with the ethos, good health and perhaps survival of democratic institutions and societies. Finally, he suggests policy reform that could avoid the excesses of growing inequality and preserve democracy. Kelly catches our interest by observing how the novels of Austen in Britain and Balzac in uh, France describe how a young person may find the material foundations for a satisfactory life in theft or in marriage into a large inheritance, but not in the, but not in the application of youthful intelligence and energy to study and professional achievement. Not good for our business, uh, Nick. Uh, his data established that inequality in the distribution of wealth and income in France, the United, States, in the United Kingdom and the United States tended to grow wider in the early stages of modern economic growth, shrink decisively from the outbreak of war a century ago until the 1970s, and grow wider again over recent decades. There was once much less inequality in the United States than in Europe, but now much more, as wide in the United States now as in Europe in the Belle Epoque. The economic model that Piketty uses to explain growing inequality is built on the simple reality that when the return on capital exceeds the growth rate of the economy, income from capital tends to increase over time relative to income from labour. He expects the rate of return on capital to remain more or less steady over future time as it has done in the past and the rate of economic growth to fall over time with the slowing of growth in both population and productivity. It follows that he expects the share of capital in national income to rise over time. The book makes strong points about the relationship between the distribution of income and wealth on the one hand and democratic policy-making and political stability on the other. He notes that, uh, that, that policy, progressive income and capital taxes and expenditure policy was important in the lessening of inequality in the mid-20th century.
that wealth is highly influential in the policy process and has become more so as disparities have increased and that inequality of the dimension that is likely to emerge over the 21st century is in inconsistent with democracy. Piketty's preferred policy response to preserve democracy and a market economy is for all countries to introduce a progressive annual global wealth tax. He acknowledges that for the time being, international agreement on the introduction of a progressive wealth tax is utopian. Pending such agreement, he suggests that uh, uh, developments within the European Union could take things quite a long way. I see merit in the Piketty eclectic discussion of sources of inequality, in his views about the effects of inequality on the health of and prospects for democracy, and in his main suggestions for policy. But there's a big problem in the central analysis of the prospects for inequality. And now I'm going to discuss that problem. Is Keynes or Piketty wrong about the rate of return? Piketty's conclusions depend on his view that the rate of return on capital will not fall much from past levels and certainly will not fall below the rate of growth. He makes a great deal of the historical tendency for the pre-tax rate of return on capital to hold up at about uh, 4 to 5 per cent per annum. That's all those quotes from Austin and Balzac. Uh, he calculates rates of return in a particular way and concludes by implication that Keynes was wrong. Not so fast. Piketty's calculations on returns depend on the continuing boost that falling interest rates has, has given to capital values of assets since the turn of the century. Sovereign bond rates are now extraordinarily low by historical standards. I wrote this uh, as I was coming over here at uh, the weekend, and I, I wrote that uh, last Friday in London, 2.39% for 10-year sovereign bonds, 3.43% in Melbourne, with higher currency risk and inflation expectations, 2.43% in New York, 0.92% uh, in Frankfurt and Tokyo, 0.52%. That was last weekend. I just took a glance at uh, the Bloomberg screens uh, as I was coming here today. Uh, and these rates uh, would have to be adjusted downwards by 17 basis points for the United Kingdom, uh, 14 basis points for the United States. The contemporary real rate of return on low-risk investment in the developed countries is substantially lower than it, than it has ever been. The fall to these levels uh, through the early 21st century has spurred the boom in real asset values obviously bonds, but also real estate uh, equities. Long-term interest rates can't keep falling from current levels, and so they'll soon cease to be a source of rising asset values, was one of the things that Piketty's data was picking up. The general presumption is that the low bond yields are a temporary phenomenon associated with the aftermath of the Great Crash of 2008. If the presumption were correct, we could expect a fall in asset values as interest rates rise. But there's another possibility, that historically low interest rates are the new norm for the 21st century. This is suggested by the persistence of low rates through the admittedly weak recovery that is currently proceeding in the United States. If so, we are already out of Austin's and Balzac's worlds, worlds of comfortable rentiers. 
Beyond Pichetti's fears of yields on investment persisting near the levels of the 19th and 20th centuries, and into one dimension of the world that Keynes envisaged for the 21st century. The incipient uh, business investment in the developed world since the financial crisis may reflect the low returns on investment available in contemporary circumstances and the slow adjustment of business expectations of returns on investment to the new reality. There just may not be so many investments around anymore that can earn those high rates of return that were once expected. And we can see possible reasons for that in the higher savings rates in the developed countries associated with the ageing of the populations. The shift of the centre of gravity of world economic growth to developing countries, especially China, that happened to have um, very high savings rates. The absolute level of savings in China today is, as, is bigger than Europe and the United States together. Uh, and as China becomes bigger, that high savings rate becomes more influential globally. Um, if the Keynesian euthanasia of the Rontier is with us already in the early 21st century, it has arrived surprisingly early given the globalisation of economic activity. One would expect that the globalisation of economic activity moving outside the, the narrow developed country world uh, of Keynes, of Hayek, of, uh, uh, of Popper, of Schumpeter uh, would hold up for some time the rate of return on investment uh, and, uh, 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 and uh, hold up the global rate of economic growth. It probably has. So it's surprising that those other influences I've talked about uh, should be so large that they can overwhelm that effect of globalisation. So let's have a little look at the uh, impact of global economic development uh, on, on global inequality. And to do this, I, I use a distinction between developed countries that already enjoy high living standards and uh, everything that goes along with that, developing countries which are on the path of modern economic development, uh, living standards, productivity rising, fertility falling, and underdeveloped countries where productivity and incomes of most people are low and stagnant, uh, and fertility and population growth high. Um, uh, people in the developed countries already enjoy uh, a standard of living that any, early any earlier generations of humanity uh, would regard as an abundance uh, in a longer version of, of this uh, presentation that later will be available on the LSE uh, whereby I talk a little bit about some of the reasons why that might be so. And those reasons are discussed at greater length in the Skidelsky and Skidelsky book that I've already mentioned. The tough old mover of economic reform in China, Deng Xiaoping, will be disappointed by the insatiability of Chinese desires for improvements in material standards of living. He said to me in a conversation in 1986 that he looked forward to the Chinese people on the mainland enjoying by the middle of the 21st century the superior living standards then experienced by people in Taiwan and Korea. Then, he said, they should be satisfied. Well, already 
long before the middle of this century, uh, Chinese people on the mainland are enjoying material standards of living much higher than people in Korea and Taiwan enjoyed in 1986, and they're not the least bit satisfied. Uh, Deng could at least take comfort that they, the Chinese uh, people on the mainland express happiness with their current lot to pollsters uh, in higher proportions than people elsewhere. For all the insatiability of desires, the developed countries are having difficulty in maintaining effective demand at levels that secure high employment. For the developed world as a whole, government intentions of uh, investment decisions of citizens fall short of their, of their intentions to save. Government deficits make up some of the shortfall in demand, but not enough to secure full employment. This is the background to the exceptional monetary policies that you hear about in Europe, UK, US and Japan. It is doubtful whether private sector savings and investment decisions will be consistent with high levels of employment after the withdrawal of exceptional monetary policies in the foreseeable future or ever in the absence of other sources of stimulus to demand. What might provide an additional stimulus? Well, it could be uh, investment, public investment in infrastructure, and the IMF has just come out with a paper a couple of days ago supporting that idea. Uh, but that's not very palatable to most governments at the moment uh, who are scared of the, de of the deficits that are still there from the global financial crisis. Another approach would be for developed countries deliberately to increase income earning investment abroad in ways that accelerate incomes growth in developing countries. A substantial part of the increase would need to be public investment. The private sector can be expected already to be investing abroad most of what seems to be justified by its perceptions of commercial opportunity. The capital outflow will be associated with lower real exchange rates, larger net exports and higher production of tradable goods and services. The income earning, abroad, uh, income earning investment abroad would reconcile high savings in anticipation of retirement requirements of an ageing population with high employment in the developed countries. Income from or sale of the assets to, uh, accumulated abroad uh, would provide resources when required to support expenditure in an old population. These considerations support high levels of contemporary investment abroad by Chinese official agencies and the recent Chinese efforts to lead the building of a BRICS bank and an Asian infrastructure bank. I think we need other institutions, more institutions or the existing institutions to carry a heavier load uh, in promoting that, um, that, that uh, uh, capital flow into uh, um, income-raising investments, especially in infrastructure in the developing countries. China is moving so swiftly through the middle-income range of development that only a political cataclysm would block its attainment of developed status within a decade or so. Incidentally, the graduation of China to developed status without transformation of its political system would change the political complexion of the developed world. The addition of China with its present political and economic systems would make a substantial majority of the developed world's people citizens of a platonic market economy. Now, that's a new world. Uh, the underdeveloped countries roughly correspond to Collier's bot bottom billion. And uh, sadly, today they include all of Australia's island neighbours 
in an arc of instability, intensifying poverty and high fertility and population growth through Papua New Guinea, at least to Fiji. Uh, my observation from a lot of experience uh, uh, with those countries broadly support those of Collier after his lifetime's work in Africa. Uh, the problems are problems of governance. They're extremely difficult. Uh, the magnitude of the problems does not mean that progress is impossible, just difficult, requiring institutional stability, wisely directed institution building over long periods and often intrusive external support. Uh, and uh, a number of bottom billion African countries are making headway in the 21st century so far, interestingly led by Ethiopia with its remnant Lenin estate and large Chinese support for infrastructure and agricultural and industrial development. The bottom billion are more important than their current numbers suggest because much higher fertility makes them a rapidly increasing proportion of humanity. Uh, unless there is early progress in bringing the bottom billion into the process of modern economic development, then we face a risk of the world staying in a Malthusian bog, uh, in which even the success of large numbers of people in the developing countries may not lead to a reduction in the number of people on Earth living in poverty or even a reduction in the proportion living in poverty. The outlook for income inequality for all of humanity differs from the main Piketty story, which is based on data from the old developed countries. Uh, and I think we should look uh, separately at what's happening inside major countries, but also have an eye to what's happening in the world as a whole. Uh, Piketty's focus is on what's happening in the old developed countries, and there there has been an increase in the dispersion of the distribution of income and wealth. Uh, but in the world as a whole, uh, the fact that most people on Earth live in Asia and Asian incomes, uh, incomes of ordinary people in Asia, are growing much more rapidly than or, or the incomes of ordinary people in the world as a whole, I mean that a Gini coefficient for the world as a whole uh, will be demonstrating falling uh, inequality, especially in the period since 2005 when labour started to become scarce in China and real wages grow much faster than aggregate economic growth. Uh, but that's not to say uh, that uh, income distribution in the old developed countries doesn't matter. Uh, even if you care mainly about income distribution in the world as a whole, the reason why that's the case is that the fate of democracy will be determined by the success of the old developed countries. Uh, the old developed countries will be the models for democracy and judged well or poorly depending on their performance. Uh, and uh, a period of, uh, uh, of, of political failure associated with widening income uh, distribution in the developed countries would would uh, uh, have damaging consequences for the standing and perceptions of democracy. Quite a lot can be done 
uh, within nation states uh, about the income distribution even in a globalising world, but probably not unless there is cooperation amongst large economies, developed countries and China, uh, in, uh, uh, in the taxation of high incomes and capital. Uh, this might not be utopian. It's the, the, uh, the drag uh, of uh, increasing use of tax havens, the drag of uh, difficulties of, uh, uh, of taxing capital income is now seriously corroding the revenue base of, of developed countries enough for that to have become, that issue to have become a major element on the agenda of the G20, uh, for example, in the meetings in Brisbane that will take place next month. Uh, within China itself, uh, income distribution in the last few years is at last becoming less unequal after a long period in which it became wider and wider. That's partly a function of policy. Uh, it's partly a function uh, of uh, the stage of development that China's at. The, uh, it reached the turning point of economic development when labour becomes scarce, real wages start to rise rapidly almost a decade ago, and since then uh, growth has been associated with compression, well, especially the last few years, with compression of living standards. More complicated in Indonesia, partly because growth has not been quite as strong since... Uh, uh, the, the Asian financial crisis. Their financial crisis is 97-98, not 2008-2009. That was the crisis that destroyed the military government uh, and brought in democracy. Uh, the, the, uh, the slower rate of growth uh, in, in income since then is associated by some people uh, with, with the new style of government, democracy, uh, in the, that long traffic jam that I was caught in between Surabaya and Bajonogoro, uh, there, there were some bumper stickers that I couldn't help noticing, especially one in car right in front of me, saying uh, it was better with Sahato. Um, and uh, uh, democracy has a short memory. Of course, it was the Sahato government that... Uh, uh, led Indonesia at the time of Indonesia's Great Depression, uh, 98, which saw as big a fall in GDP as, uh, as Germany had during the Great Depression. Uh, but, uh, but the general story is not a bad one in, in Indonesia, and continuation of today's levels of economic growth would lead to uh, greater scarcity of labour and compression of income distribution, uh, income inequality in due course. Uh, so uh, uh, I don't think that there will be uh, greatly better opportunities for ordinary people in the developed countries in the uh, market economy until there are better opportunities for all people on earth. The uh, fiscal interventions can modify the outcome of, uh, of the market economy, uh, but... Uh, Labour incomes, the, what one might call the primary distribution of income, uh, are, are going to be under, or well, distribution of income is going to be under stress uh, until uh, labour in the world as a whole is a good deal less uh, abundant than it is now. And that means the movement uh, of the 
increasing scarcity of labour that we now see in China uh, through much of the developed world. But we can alleviate some of those effects with fiscal interventions and cooperation between countries uh, in the uh, intervening period. So I, I don't think we should lose sight of the possibility of success with modern economic development, what I call the maturation of modern economic development, the extension to all people on earth of high living standards, uh, of the living standards currently enjoyed in the developed countries. The bottom billion is one heck of a challenge, uh, but I don't think it's an impossible one. And the payoff for that in terms of global income distribution, the prospects for democracy uh, will be great. Of course, there are many barriers to the maturation of economic development. One is that we will need high-quality international cooperation, the delivery of international public goods on a number of matters. I've already mentioned uh, the, the cooperation that's required on bringing the, the bottom billion into uh, modern economic development. Uh, our chair this evening will, I'm sure, concur in my view that another precondition for the maturation of global development uh, is the world dealing effectively with the problem of uh, anthropogenic climate change. But I don't see the, the problem here for all the difficulties as being impossible either. Uh, we've actually made a fair bit of progress uh, on international cooperation on this since the diplomatic fiasco in Copenhagen in, uh, 19, in um, 2009. Uh, most importantly, uh, we've become more realistic about what is possible in terms of explicit international agreement. We're now working within a new framework that I call concerted unilateral mitigation, with each country taking its own decisions, affected and taking into account what other countries are doing, uh, um, uh, and not relying uh, on a legally binding international agreement, which I think is not feasible uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, we can get quite a long way with that, and what's happening in China right now and the United States right now is, uh, represents a big change in trajectory uh, that should uh, give us all some hope. Um, now, unila concerted unilateral mitigation will only work if all countries cooperate, and unfortunately there are a couple of developed countries that are not cooperating, uh, Canada and my own country, Australia. Uh, Australia was actually making quite good progress faster progress than other developed countries for a couple of years, uh, but in the past year uh, we've gone backwards uh, in a rather messy way. So some concluding remarks. Uh, um, many of the questions about where our political and economic systems are taking us that were discussed by Keynes, Hayek, um, Schumpeter and Popper 70 and 80 years ago have been answered by experience. Um, uh, Central planning is something we don't have to worry about now. Uh, we don't have to worry very much about the merits and uh, demerits of traditional capitalism because the progress of the mixed economy in the post-war period settled that question. However, grotesque mutations of Schumpeterian ideas on democratic capitalism live on. 
uh, their revival in the late 20th and early 21st centuries as libertarian ideas for deregulation, especially of finance, and lower taxation have created large problems for managing modern economic systems. The mutations turned Schumpeter's uh, support for unbridled competition and creative destruction on its head by preserving and extending monopoly. Schumpeter always saw the potential for money corrupting democratic policymaking and he would recognise his fears in recent developments. Keynes and Popper would not be surprised or terribly uncomfortable with the rather messy social democracy which has emerged in all of the open societies. Keynes would be telling us that we were wasting a lot of our state intervention on matters that don't matter much and neglecting other interventions that would have a bigger payoff. Hayek would think that government had strayed too far, but he would have to acknowledge that the path to which the developed countries had strayed was not towards serfdom, at least not on these matters. All of the big minds on capitalism, socialism and democracy from the 30s and 40s would have been amazed by the successful emergence of China as the largest economy, the IMF says yesterday, uh, and of Indonesia as a dynamic democracy. The extension of modern economic development to the developing world in the last quarter of the last century is the most important development in the world economy uh, since modern economic growth began on this island a quarter of a millennium ago. Where does platonic market economy go next? Uh, if Xi uh, Jinping if succeeds in cleaning the Aegean stables, a barrier will have been removed from the emergence of China as a developed economy. That must be the more likely, if not certain, outcome. If he fails, we can expect disorder that is deeply disruptive outside as well as inside China. There is a widespread view in the West that the emergence of a developed market economy will be accompanied by a movement towards democratic capitalism in China. There will be political change, no doubt, as China becomes richer. Uh, but will it be change in the political superstructure that people in the West would call democratic? Continued success in raising material standards of living, continuing the reversal of the early 21st century increase in, in inequality, allowing people to travel across and between the great cities rapidly and in comfort, cleaning the air and leading the world's mitigation of climate change will all give the guardians more time. But the large number of people of young people on the Hong Kong streets in recent weeks reminds us that it won't be only these things that uh, uh, determine uh, the evolution of the Chinese political structure. Um, events will force responses to pressures for political change from time to time. The idea of the guardians at those times will be one of the influences of, uh, on events, but only one. Um, large numbers of Indonesians are deeply committed to their democracy and excited by their choice of a new president from outside the old elites. But they fear that money and the forces of the closed society will find common cause and take it away. Current discussion of limits on campaign funding and introduction of public funding of election campaigns are on the front line of the defence of the open society in Indonesia. Australia is also at an historic point on the future of capitalist democracy, old democracy that we are. 
Corporate money has played a direct role in Australian policy making and electoral competition over the past half dozen years in a way and on a scale that has no precedent. Climate change mitigation is simply the most important of the issues on which this has had important effects. In the 2013 election, uh, the new party to which I've already referred took the new political culture to new depths. There's one source of hope, however, and that uh, is partly a reflection of how bad things have become. Uh, the state of New South Wales, our most populous state, uh, has an, a strong and effective uh, uh, independent commission against corruption uh, and has been conducting a series of hearings uh, that have uh, shocked uh, Australians uh, uh, about many aspects of the character of relations between business and uh, and uh, uh, political decision making uh, in Sydney. Uh, and uh, once what is actually happening has hit the open air, been aired in the Commission and in the newspapers, uh, Australians have made it very clear that they don't like it. Uh, the Premier of New South Wales has resigned, a dozen, several of his ministers have resigned, uh, a dozen. Uh, uh, members of Parliament for the Governing Parties have moved to the crossbenches, and a new Premier has said that he will clean up the system, end corporate donations uh, to political parties, uh, limit private donations, personal donations, and, and increase public funding uh, for, for uh, political parties. Uh, we'll see how he goes. There'll be strong opposition to it. Uh, but uh, success would be an important step forward in reviving a democratic culture in Australia. So in Australia, uh, as well as Indonesia and China, the influence of vested interests in the policy-making process has emerged as the most important battleground over which the future of capitalism, socialism and democracy will be fought. This seems less grand than the clash of ideas involving Keynes, Hayek, Schumpeter and Popper, or before that of Reeves and Shaw and the Webbs, or earlier still of Lincoln at Gettysburg. Maybe it is less grand, but it will be no easier to win than old battles for democracy. And what is at stake is as grand as anything ever was. Such simple things will determine whether government by, as well as of and for the people, will be the main vehicle on which we travel to the maturation of modern economic development or perishes from this earth. Thank you. Um, is this one working? Yes? Um, th I'd like to start by thanking Ross very much for a, a very deep lecture which ex expresses in a very strong way not only scholarship but a deep understanding of the world and the world from different geographical perspectives. It's, I hope that many of you will be able to read this lecture because it puts together um, an enormous sweep of intellectual history. When I started economics in the 60s, it was almost at the end of the period when um, people were looking at the evolution of the capitalist system 
and asking about its implications for democracy. It was almost at the end of an argument that had gone on for 100 years, uh, at least since uh, Marx and Das Kapital. And, of course, it was there also in David Ricardo. And what we saw in the period after the 60s was quite a strong focus on arguments the other way around. Um, What was the effect of democracy on economic growth and economic performance? And what Ross and others have brought us back to is that very classical and important question, the relationship between economic performance and democracy. Um, For Marx, it was the falling rate of profit leading as the reserve army um, ran down, leading to um, a very strong effort to push down wages and... um, the ultimate revolution um, of the workers. That was a very powerful story of the way the falling rate of profit would change the political system. Uh, With Keynes, it rather went the other way. He thought the falling rate of profit would, um, as it were, lead to less strains on the system. But you can see that there was a very long period, ranging from Marx to Keynes and beyond, really into the 50s and 60s, when people saw the worries about democracy as coming from the economic system. And then we had perhaps 40 years or or so from the 60s onwards to a very different kind of argument and people trying to tell us that um, democracy was necessary for economic growth. Um, And much of the story ran the other way. And I think Ross has brought us back in a very powerful way to the questions about the relationship between the economic system and democracy. And I was very struck by his quote, and I do hope you're going to read this paper, which is the one that he ended with. I'll just read this one paragraph. It's very short. Of special interest to the 21st century discussion, Schumpeter thought that the means at the disposal of private interests in a democracy are often used to thwart the will of the people and interfere with the working of the mechanisms of competitive leadership. Thus, um, I think instead of going on and on about the falling rate of profit or the non-falling rate of profit, as Marx and Keynes and more recently Piketty has done, what Ross has brought us back to is a different question about the relationship between the functioning of an economic system and democracy. The one about the special interests essentially shaping and many of us would regard as perverting the course of democracy. And I have to say I share with Ross the idea that that's the place to look for the worries about the relationship between the form of capitalism we have and democracy rather than agonising endlessly about what we think is going to happen to the rate of profit. So what we heard tonight was a very important statement of the way to think about the relationship between economic performance and democracy, one that certainly, as I was listening, made me think again about some of the discussions and in some ways brought me back to the arguments we had in the 60s as that era of thinking about um, the flow of causation from economy to democracy was ending and the arguments were starting to build about the relationships between democracy and economic performance. So it's very good to be brought back there, but brought back there in a way 
that um, shows this deep scholarship of economic and political thought and uh, indeed of the world. And uh, Ross, like myself, um, has worked very hard to try to change the world and like myself, he has grey hair as the uh, partial outcome of uh, these attempts. But Ross, I do hope you keep on trying because what you said this evening was extremely important and it certainly moved me to think in ways I hadn't thought about for some time. So I'm very grateful to you for that. Well, that was a bit from me. That wasn't a question. <laughs> um, now we've got about 25 minutes for questions and I hope there will be many. Uh, I'm going to take... Uh, three at a time to try and get as many possible in. Um, I hope you will not follow my example and make uh, speeches, so um, try to make them questions and keep them short, please. So I'm going to start at the top and then go down. Questions at the top? Yes, gentlemen, just there, please. Uh, first of all, thank you, Professor, for the inspiring speech. Uh, my name is Bo Hong Wang. I just graduated from LSC. Um, you mentioned a, a lot about the, the developed countries and the developing countries, and it seems to me that the major tension is not between the uh, capitalism, socialism, and democracy. It's a tension between the developed countries and its contenders, uh, the catching-up countries. Well, the, one could argue that the uh, establishment of the uh, BRICS Bank and the Qing Mai Initiative are kind of fight back from the developing countries uh, to the Brenton Woods architectures. So I'm wondering how can you comment on this tension, inevitable uh, tension and competition between the advanced countries and the contender countries. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll take one down here. Gentleman in the hat there. You must give me the address of your milliner. Uh, hi there. Uh, thank you for the talk. Uh, we, we don't live in a, a democracy here in this country or Americas, so I don't understand how other countries are meant to be driven towards a goal that people say is called democracy when it so obviously doesn't live here. And I think that capitalism is like a parasite that sits inside it. Every time somebody tries to create a democracy, it sits in there and it devours every hope and aspiration of those people. Because capitalism is not an economic model. It is a project to destroy uh, the majority's opportunity to have a democracy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, any more questions from down in the, this level? This gentleman here, please. Yeah, um, thank you very much for the talk. I was very struck by your comment about um, economic growth actually driving a compression in living standards, and I just wondered if you could expand on that, because that seems extremely significant. Thank you. So, Ross, some big, uh, big, deep questions there. Um, uh, could you respond to those three, and then we'll, um, uh, I hope we'll have a chance for at least another three. Well, on the first question, thanks uh, for the, uh, about uh, develop, competition between developed and developing countries. I don't think there's anything inherently uh, uh, um, tense in, in relations between the developed countries and the successful developing countries. 
uh, although one must uh, acknowledge that uh, globalization of world economic activity has been one source of pressure for wider dispersion of the distribution of income in the developed countries. Uh, but uh, that, that hurts labour incomes in the developed countries. It doesn't hurt capital incomes in the developed countries. In fact, it holds up rates of return. Uh, so that's not a conflict with the society as a whole. And my suggestion there is that that should be a reason for doing everything we can without getting in the way of economic development uh, to, uh, uh, um, to reduce those, uh, that widening uh, distribution of income in the developed countries and I think there are quite a, th a lot of things we can do although we do have to have uh, international cooperation on the on the question of um, uh, ta uh, taxation of capital. Uh, for these purposes I think we should be thinking of China as a developed country. Uh, it will soon be a developed country by any standard. It's a huge capital exporter. Uh, its role in the BRICS bank, in the infrastructure bank, is uh, very similar to, to the role of, uh, uh, of other developed countries through other institutions, including the institution that Nick was uh, chief economist of. Uh, uh, so let's think of China for these purposes as a uh, developed country. Uh, I think the problems of the developed countries now would be much easier, much more easily managed, and that's a problem of deficient aggregate demand, which we're trying to cure with this exceptional monetary policy, this experimental monetary policy. Um, I think we'd be much better off uh, systematically promoting capital inflow into the developing countries of... Uh, um, uh, 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 in ways that uh, promote economic development. Uh, and, in, and that is what China's doing with the BRICS Bank and the Infrastructure Bank. Uh, but I think that uh, for the developed countries, that would be a much better strategy than experiments with monetary policy, the end points of which uh, uh, are unknown to us. So I think there's a basic complementarity of interest there, and China's interests are the same as the developed countries in all of that. On the doubts about whether capitalism is a good thing, uh, I think the Skidelsky and Skidelsky book is very interesting on this. It goes through the uh, history of um, ideas, ethical ideas about market exchange. Uh, Skidelsky has the, the, the well-known Skidelsky who did the biographies of Keynes uh, has the great advantage of a son who's a philosopher. So uh, to get, together they uh, put together an engaging book um, uh, that discusses these questions at, at great length. And, and uh, the Skidelskys talk about a Faustian pact uh, that uh, the capitalism does give us abundance. Um, uh, but it takes away a lot of the uh, uh, the, the moral values that um, uh, that, that traditional societies uh, once thought life was all about. Uh, and uh, the, the question is uh, how you manage that, if you like, Faustian tension uh, between the, uh, the the source of the abundance and uh, uh, and the moral implications of that. Uh, and uh, um, I must say that uh, I am on the side of Keynes uh, in those 
uh, great debates about where it's all leading us. I think that abundance will be helpful in the end uh, to the moral order as well as other things. But uh, uh, it's a complicated question, uh, and this, the Skidelskys are worth reading about it. Third question... Um, uh, compression of living standards. I, I was talking about the compression of uh, the dispersion uh, of the distribution. Uh, so talking about leading to greater equality. Uh, now um, that is what we saw in the developed countries uh, the, uh, through the period of successful growth, the 50s, uh, 60s, uh, uh, early 70s. Uh, it's what we've moved away from uh, since then within the developed countries for complicated reasons that I don't think are inevitable. Uh, but for the world as a whole, I don't think there's any doubt that, they, that once the big Asian countries, and there's three very big ones, uh, China, India and Indonesia, join the process of modern economic growth, that we started to see globally a, com uh, a compression of the distribution of income, greater equality on a global scale. Uh, now, uh, we, to keep that going, uh, we've got to make sure that more and more of the world uh, uh, um, uh, participates in modern economic development. But, but I think that the experience since China, especially China, but China, India and Indonesia uh, entered modern economic development confirms the view that, that uh, uh, this, has, this, this process of modern economic development is helpful to compression of global inequalities. Um. If there's time, you can come back, but I'll let other people have a go first. Um, uh, lady just here, please. Hi. Um, given the current government in Australia's almost refusal to implement an emissions trading scheme, um, do you think that there's any scope to reach the conservative targets that were met um, to reduce Australia's emissions? Tra um, emissions? Yeah. Um, I'll take three, if, if I may. Uh, upstairs, a gentleman, a shirt there, a little way back. You, uh, you talked about some of the challenges uh, that the world is facing from climate change to uh, some of the, the tax policy on, on tax havens and all of that, and you expressed a little bit of optimism in the short term on, on sort of unilateral... Uh, uh, fixes to that. Um, but in the long term, do you think that the institutions that we currently have at the global scale and the conception of democracy that we have at the national level is sufficient to address these challenges, or do we, do we need to talk about reforms to democracy, uh, you know, sort of the, the core foundation of from deliberative democracy to uh, more participatory forms? Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? And there's a gentleman just there, the pink tie. Yeah. And if we if we move fairly fast, uh, Ross, we might get three more in. Uh, hello, uh, I think uh, my question is uh, actually about the topic uh, itself of this uh, open lecture. Uh, this morning, I heard a rumor that the staff uh, from the uh, London Underground are planning a strike uh, next week. Uh, so I opened a vote online for my friends. Uh, which underground uh, which underground system uh, in which city? I mean, uh, in the world, is the most reliable? Uh, and most of my friends uh, they chose Beijing, actually, uh, because the possibility of uh, successfully holding 
holding a strike in Beijing is zero. Even China is a socialist country. So uh, my question is actually, is, uh, uh, do you have any comments on the discrepancy uh, between China's social or socialist ideology and its uh, capitalist style economic development? And do you, uh, do you think this uh, uh, discrepancy uh, will cause disorder in the thinking of Chinese people? Uh, and do you think the, this will lead to problems in the future uh, after China's de- uh, democracy improves and more rights are offered to Chinese people? That's it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Again, three big questions. If you could be fairly quick, Ross, we'll just have to try and get. We'll try to get in three more. Uh, on Australia's emissions targets, well, our targets, as communicated to the United Nations and as supported by the then opposition, the current government in Australia, are not all that conservative. The target is not a 5% reduction in total uh, emissions. It's 5% reduction in absolute level emissions if the rest of the world does nothing. That's unconditional and quite explicitly if the rest of the world does nothing. It's 15% if the other developed countries are doing something comparable and developing countries are doing something. Uh, quite explicit, and 25% in the context of, uh, of, the, of the world uh, taking decisions that, that give us reasonable chance of, uh, of holding uh, temperature increases to 2 degrees. Since the election, the government has only mentioned the 5%, but Australia's commitment to the United Nations is the whole lot. And during the election campaign in a meeting at uh, Melbourne University, the, the current environment minister was asked that question and confirmed that the then opposition's policy was to support the, the whole set of targets, not just the, the 5%. And 5% for Australia is different from 5% for other countries. We've got 1.6% per annum population growth when a lot of the developed world has little or negative population growth. And, and through the, the period, this century up till now, we've had a minimum of a couple of percentage points of economic growth, average of about three uh, uh, so, so, the, uh, so the implications are different. Now, the government is not taking, uh, is, is not mentioning the wider targets, which I see as part of our commitment to the international community. Now, I think that is a breach. If they don't stand by those, it's a breach of an election commitment. Um, but but uh, where will current policies lead us? Well, Australia was making very large progress under the set of policies that were legislated in a series of steps, uh, 2010, 2011. Uh, In fact, uh, measured as emissions intensity, which uh, emissions relative to the size of the economy, uh, there were only two countries during that period in the world that were reducing emissions fast enough to give the... that if the whole world was doing it and kept doing it, would get us to two degrees, and they were China and Australia. Uh, we're reversing that now. Uh, we got rid of carbon pricing. Through a, through a strange and accidental process, uh, we will keep the renewable energy target, whether we will keep it with current parameters or not. I mentioned how the Palmer United Party has voted in the Senate to support the government's repeal of carbon pricing, but it has, it has rejected... It voted with the Labor Party and the Greens to reject the repeal of other parts of the carbon package. So that probably means that we will continue to decarbonise our electricity sector at quite a rapid rate, more rapidly than other developed countries. So that's, uh, that's a fascinating outcome. 
uh, but it gives us a very strong momentum in, in reducing the largest block of emissions. But it doesn't do anything about emissions in the rest of the economy. And for Australia, uh, what we call fugitive emissions is huge. And that's emissions from uh, coal mining and not from combustion of the coal, but just from opening up the the coal mine, which leads to a lot of uh, uh, methane emissions, and from uh, liquefied natural gas, where the compression of uh, the natural gas uh, and the uh, gener- uh, freeze uh, carbon dioxide unless it's re-injected uh, will, uh, will lead to large emissions. These two things are huge in Australia. Well, not having carbon pricing leaves the, the, these... Uh, this huge area of emissions growth uh, mm. uh, unsupported. And, and it's relatively cheap to uh, handle emissions from coal mines and from LNG projects. Uh, but uh, but uh, it's not as cheap as just letting the carbon dioxide and the methane go up into the air. So in the absence of carbon pricing, that's going to be a big problem. I think that will probably stop... Uh, Australia meeting even its 5% unless new elements are added to the package unless China's action on climate change becomes so strong, it's very strong recently uh, that uh, uh, we, we we find that a lot of the, uh, uh, the coal projects that were anticipated don't come into production uh, which would help us meet our targets as well as the Chinese meet their targets um, uh, on the question about are our current institutions global and um, democratic and domestic, uh, domestically democratic adequate to the task? Well, no. Uh, I, I myself am not terribly attracted by participatory dem- democracy. Uh, looking first at uh, systems within countries, uh, I've been pretty close to policy-making process in Australia uh, for a long time, uh, and I think we can make our democracy work. I, I was very close to the government that was responsible for the reform period, uh, 83 to the end of the century, uh, and a lot of hard things were done in the public interest, and, and that worked. I was also very close to the governments that introduced carbon pricing, and that's all being dismantling, dismantled. So it depends on what I wake up worrying about, uh, whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic. But, um, uh, 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 but I think that the big weakness of our system is the influence of, uh, 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 of corporate donations on the policy-making process. And my, my own view is that if we clean that up, we can make our democracy work. Uh, on the international institutions, um, obviously some of these problems would be better if we had stronger global institutions. And one day we will have them. Uh, on this island, how uh, a legal system developed, uh, how the legal reach of uh, Westminster expanded uh, was uh, th- through necessity. Uh, of more and more problems actually requiring a national government. Same thing in the United States. Uh, uh, the uh, antitrust laws uh, uh, that gradually uh, developed a national 
set of uh, uh, regulatory arrangements uh, out of the old arrangements for the state, something similar in Australia. We will have pressures for that in Australia. The problem is, in the, in the world, the problem is the, the, the natural processes will generate solutions rather slowly. So I think we have to economise on what we focus on for international cooperation, prioritise, just identify the very most important things. I think I'd put right at the top doing something about the bottom billion, doing something about climate change, doing something about uh, uh, the international taxation uh, uh, problem, but but obviously there there are others. Um, uh, I don't think there is any way of handling either the bottom billion problem that doesn't give a a stronger role to the Security Council uh, and, 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 and just looking at it in through modern eyes, the idea of having two nation-states from Europe represented on the Security Council just is anachronistic, and the idea of not having India on the Security Council with a veto is is anachronistic. So that's a very simple step that I think could be taken to to modernise the Security Council. I think we we, uh, have to be realistic about the range of issues that could be handled by international uh, uh, bodies, and we do need change and reform. On climate change, I think it's better to make progress through through the new system that's emerged, the concerted unilateral mitigation for the time being. Now, that won't get us all the way that we need to uh, two tonnes per person to... uh, holding uh, human-induced climate change to two degrees. But uh, we need a period of progress to show that we can do it, and I think that will uh, be the mechanism through which uh, stronger international cooperation becomes possible. And uh, I'm not sure that I got all of the, uh, of the, of the last question. So certainly the, the Beijing underground worked very well from a lot of points of view. It's, it's now the most widely used... In terms of number of people who use it every day, two biggest in the world are now Beijing and Shanghai, 10 million a day in Beijing, 9 million a day in... Uh, in uh, 10 million, 9 million in Shanghai. Uh, uh, but but, but I, I don't know uh, uh, much about reliability in the circumstances you're talking about. Uh, but where does the tension between growing inequality for a long period in China and, and uh, Marxist and communist uh, ideology... Uh, how does that work itself out? Well, there was a big problem in China within the Chinese Communist Party about modern economic development because almost anything you did to uh, accelerate economic growth uh, after uh, uh, the, 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 the new power structure emerged in 1978 was going to involve increased inequality for a while. And that was a source of problems for the party until Zhao Ziyang... Uh, who I, and Zhao Ziyang a, was Premier and then General Secretary of the Party and purged uh, uh, put under house arrest for the rest of his life in 1989 uh, when he had a different view from Deng Xiaoping on uh, what should happen to the student demonstrations. But in, in an obituary for uh, Zhao Ziyang, I, I, I wrote that of many people it's been my privilege to meet in my life uh, his was the the mind with the greatest computing power of any mind I'd ever interacted with. And Zhao uh, uh, Ziyang in, invented a Marxist idea uh, which became Communist Party policy in 1987. He said that China is in the primitive stage of communism. 
And in the primitive stage of communism, the priority is the uh, development of the productive forces of the economy. And, and so everyone could get on with the job once that was accepted. Now, that can't last forever, but it can last for a very long time, and, and China is still within that period. Uh, uh, lots of Chinese uh, uh, people, a lot of conscientious members of the, of the um, uh, Communist Party in China, 80 million members of the Communist Party in China, but uh, uh, worry about, uh, worried a great deal about growing inequality um, uh, during the period of rapidly increasing inequality, which was basically from 84 until a few years ago, several decades. I once asked Hu Chi Li, uh, a very thoughtful uh, member of the Standing Committee of the Politburo, back in 86, I asked him, um, uh, what does socialism mean to you today? Uh, in this early in the period of reform. And, and he said, uh, well, uh, two things uh, that, that uh, we can't lose sight of. One, we, we, it would never be acceptable to us to have the extremes of income inequality that you have in capitalist developing countries. Well, actually, in the next several decades, China did have that. Uh, uh, and he said uh, we, we would never accept uh, uh, um, dismantling um, state ownership uh, in, the, in, in, in some of the big sectors of the economy, of, uh, of infrastructure and heavy industry. So that was his definition then. And uh, on the second of those, they've stuck by that. Uh, the, the, through the 90s, we saw privatisation of small and medium businesses uh, until the uh, private sector became bigger than the, uh, uh, the, the state-owned sector. Uh, but, um, uh, uh, but, but they didn't privatise the, the big infrastructure companies, the, the big heavy industry companies. No, there's no sign that they, they will. On income distribution, uh, we've seen equ equity questions become more and more important in um, party and state policy and strategy in the last decade. Uh, and the new, what I've been describing for the last few years as the new model of economic growth in China uh, was built into the new into the 12 five-year plan from 2011 to 2015. Uh, and equity and income distribution and doing something about the environment uh, became high-priority questions. And those two issues are actually quite closely interrelated. But um, uh, uh, the, the, and China since then, each year has gone further in new policy on both of these questions, equity and income distribution and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, the environment. Uh, the, uh, the first year, not much happened. 2012, you started seeing change on both these things in the statistics uh, and the, the changes gathering momentum. Uh, the standard statistics show that uh, the Gini coefficients show, are pointing to uh, uh, a reversal of the growing inequality in the last three years. Now, there's a big grey economy in China, a lot of, uh, uh, a, 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 a lot of undeclared income, uh, so one has to think about whether that's changing as well. Uh, a very clever uh, Chinese economist, uh, uh, Wang Xiaolu, uh, um, 
back in Beijing now, a very long time ago, he, he was a student of mine. He's been measuring the grey economy, and I had uh, dinner with him and with uh, Tsai Feng, the vice president of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, uh, uh, a few weeks ago, and they said that, that, the, that the improvement of the Gini coefficient is there whether you look at the... The, the whole economy, including the grey economy, or just the official data. So I, I'm pretty much satisfied that that's turning around. So I think that that, that it was none too early. Uh, uh, whatever the Communist Party thought was OK, I think the Chinese people were deciding that the growing inequality wasn't OK, uh, and this would have been a source of political instability if it hadn't been corrected. We're starting to see signs of it being corrected. The same structural change in the economy that's necessary to deal with that problem is also helpful to the environmental problem. Ross, uh, thank you very much. We, we do have to stop now, but I think we've had a treat this evening that there are very few economists in the world, and I mean, perhaps only one, who can bring that great sweep of um, intellectual history around the arguments um, about the economy and uh, democracy um, that could illustrate that with deep knowledge of China and on top of that, uh, bring into the discussion the interactions you had with um, Deng Xiaoping and Zhao Ziyang. There are not many people who say, well, I did discuss this matter with... <laughs> <laughs> so we heard uh, a very special talk tonight. Do please read it when it, it will go up on the web, I hope, before, before long or... Uh, that's up to the LSE. <laughs> OK. Well, soon, because the LSE is quite spectacularly efficient. And, um, <laughs> but it remains for me to thank you. Thank you, Ross, for a, a very special evening. Thank you. Thank you.